From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Congress just passed some protections for same-sex marriage, but Colorado's Constitution still defines marriage as between a man and a woman. If you see a all-too-likely scenario now where the Supreme Court decides to overturn Obergefell v. Hodges, even though the Respect for Marriage Act is in place, it doesn't guarantee that you can actually marry in Colorado. We'll walk you through the intricacies. Then, after the attack at Club Q, CPR News investigates mass shootings in Colorado this year. And climate change might conjure up images of extreme weather, but there's also the risk of boring weather. If we get a big H on the weather map, that's a big high-pressure system. They tend to have just kind of a blah weather pattern. Clouds and stillness could complicate the renewable energy picture. When a vehicle needs so many repairs that it's a money pit on wheels, sometimes it's more trouble than it's worth. But it can still be worth a lot to Colorado Public Radio. Donate it. We'll get it picked up, sold at auction, you'll get a tax receipt, and the proceeds will help pay for the programs you love. It's simple and convenient to donate your car. Get started at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Club Q was on the minds of lawmakers in Washington Thursday as they passed the Respect for Marriage Act. The law protects same-sex marriage, at least partially, should the U.S. Supreme Court reverse an earlier decision. There are protections as well for interracial marriage. Here is House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, Democrat from Maryland. Like many Americans across the country, I was sickened deeply sorry by the violent attack on an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs just a week ago, just a few weeks ago. It was a manifestation of hate, a manifestation of prejudice, a manifestation of bigotry, a manifestation of thinking one is better than the other, that somehow we are not all equal in the eyes of our Constitution and in the eyes of God. It was a somber reminder of how safe spaces still are not safe for so many. One of the Club Q survivors, a young man named Anthony, said that as he lay wounded on the floor, his first thought, not unsurprisingly, which he believed may be his last thought, was of his husband of 14 years, Jeremy. What the justices said some years ago, uh, what we have said in our legislation, is that who you love is your choice. Here in Colorado, the leading LGBTQ advocacy group says there's still work to do. Garrett Royer is deputy director of One Colorado. Garrett, thanks for being with us again. Thanks for having me. Give us the Cliff's Notes version of this bill. What what does it protect and what doesn't it? Yeah, so the Respect for Marriage Act, in some ways, it is a bill that I think a lot of advocates thought, you know, is a replacement or is sufficient to do the same thing that Obergefell did, that it protects the right to marriage. But 
Uh, Obergefell is the Supreme Court ruling yes, that legalized same-sex marriage across the country and which was brought into jeopardy because of some remarks by Justice Thomas mm-hmm. in the abortion decision. Yeah. yeah along the right to privacy. Okay, keep going. Sorry. So uh, the Respect for Marriage Act, it uh, overturns DOMA, which was the Defense of Marriage Act, uh, the bill that was passed in 1996. It banned same-sex marriage uh, across the United States. And this bill effectively guarantees the right of folks who are already married, that the state that they live in must protect and recognize their marriages. But their state does not have to allow new couples to marry. Exactly. So that's where I think we run into some of the problems with this, where uh, there has been discussion that um, we we don't need to uh, go any further in terms of marriage equality because this bill does the job. But it doesn't because even in Colorado, we have Amendment 43 on the books, which makes it so that marriage is between one man and one woman. So if you see a all too likely scenario now down the line where the Supreme Court decides to overturn Obergefell v. Hodges, even though the Respect for Marriage Act is in place, it doesn't guarantee that you can actually marry in Colorado if you're a same-sex couple. Which naturally leads to the question of whether one Colorado will pursue in the coming session, dominated by Democrats, I'll note, the state legislative session, uh, some sort of codification of gay marriage in Colorado. Yeah. So we've been looking into a number of options, uh, what that would look like. We've been talking with advocates and um, starting to see what a coalition would look like um, in terms of codification. It's going to be a priority for one Colorado. Obviously, with the law that we have on the books being a constitutional amendment rather than just a statute saying that marriage is between a man and a woman it means that down the line, you would have to address that through the voters rather than just through the state legislature. Because it's a constitutional change. Yes. Now, you have in Governor Jared Polis, someone who has vowed to sign legislation that would protect same-sex marriage. So are you saying that there's some way to pass a kind of placeholder statute? What I don't, I'm not sure what you're saying. There, there's a few options that have been discussed. Uh, a referred ballot measure where the legislature would need a two-thirds majority, and then it would go to the voters in 2024. Mm-hmm. But essentially, we're, we're not going to be able to deal with the inherent problem that's baked in of Amendment 43 unless the voters get to have a say of should this amendment be overturned, and that would allow folks in a hypothetical world where a Obergefell is undone, that would allow Colorado same-sex couples to marry. But that would need to go to the voters, mm-hmm. and that would need a 55%. Uh, 55% of voter approval. Mm-hmm. Now, back to the law that just passed Congress. Uh, help me understand this. So there are states that could say, we will not allow a couple to marry here. But they must recognize marriages past and future that are conducted elsewhere, correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late justice, talked about skim milk marriage. I think that was maybe that was the Obergefell arguments, Uh, the notion that there's a little bit of a different style of marriage prior to Obergefell for uh, gay folks. Do you think this creates a kind of two-class system where there are couples whose marriages are recognized in the state where they live, but not necessarily conducted there? Mm -hmm. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to create a number of problems if the Supreme Court decides to overturn marriage equality, because you're going to create a world where... And you're right to say that marriage equality is currently the law of the land yeah. because Obergefell stands. Absolutely. Uh -huh. But if that doesn't stand and then respect for marriage um, does guarantee that, you know, marriages must be recognized in one state or another or, or in every state, but you can't get married in that state. I think you're going to create a situation where folks are going to be traveling across the country and then they'll go back to their home state and that state must then recognize their marriage. But it is going to create this strange class division among same-sex couples where if you are living in uh, Colorado or a southern state, you're not going to be able to show your love to one another, your partner, um, as you would any other couple. Which uh, may favor wealthier folks who are able to travel. You know, I suppose differently put, though, that is a question of state sovereignty and state self-determination. The notion that if locally most are uncomfortable with gay marriage, then that should be reflected in the land they live. Talk to the person who uh, holds deep objections to gay marriage. It feels like we've moved past this, doesn't it? It feels like in 2015, this was settled law. And the fact that now we as an organization, an LGBTQ advocacy organization, there are Issues that we would rather be addressing. There are... Because you felt that this was over. Th this this, settled, this was settled. And now that this is thrown into question, uh, it, is, it is great to see that folks 10, 20 years ago who were completely opposed to the idea of same-sex marriage have been able to support the Respect for Marriage Act. Yeah, I'll say that several Republicans, well, more than several, but Republicans... Uh, did vote for this in the U.S. House. None of them from Colorado. Yes. Colorado's Republican members of Congress uh, voted against it, but go ahead. So the fact that we are now debating this again, and it does seem like the needle has moved a little bit in terms of support for marriage equality, but we have an extremely activist court that would still be willing to put folks' lives, folks' marriages, folks' individual decision-making options on the table uh, seven years after this has been settled it just feels like our lives are not a game and they shouldn't be. And for the person who would say they're still opposed to marriage equality, I can understand that perspective, absolutely. There's a number of folks in Colorado who hold that opinion. But at the end of the day, it is the decision between two individuals that doesn't impact anybody else to show their love for one another, to be able to see each other in the hospital, to be able to share insurance and these these very... Uh, Quotidian. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're kind of every day. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't impact somebody in Grand Junction if somebody in Colorado Springs, a same-sex couple, want to get married. I hear uh, you saying, if you don't like gay marriage, don't have one. In... Yes, in, in less words, of course. Uh, earlier this week, the U.S. Supreme Court heard the Colorado case of a website designer who doesn't want to design wedding sites for same-sex couples. She has not been asked to, but has an anticipatory fear of such. Is it fair to call this a mixed week for your movement? It's, it's certainly been 
a tumultuous few weeks with the Club Q shooting as well. We see these attacks that are happening rhetorically on the community. We see that the Supreme Court is already putting LGBTQ rights in their line of sight with the 303 creative case. And based on the questioning from a number of the justices the other day uh, during the 303 creative hearing, it doesn't look positive. It doesn't look good. If marriage is on the table and non-discrimination protections are on the table, it makes us wonder, Are we, did we come as far as we thought we did? 2015 seemed like a massive victory when Obergefell was passed. But you still have transgender and non-binary folks who are harassed, who are facing much higher rates of hate crimes and workplace discrimination. And those are the issues that we want to be working on. And the fact that we are now backpedaling to address marriage and to address non-discrimination um, feels like a slap in the face to the community. Uh, just speaking of wedding websites, in Googling you, Garrett, I found yours. Um, you and your husband married, I think, August 13th. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Would you speak to what the passage of the Respect for Marriage Act, uh, flawed as though it might be in your eyes, what it means for you just personally? I think it's, it is a big change culturally. And it means a lot that there are folks that are elected officials who are leaders who do see that it is important for my husband and I just to be able to exchange vows to one another and to show that love in front of our friends and family and community. And to say that that would not have been the case 10 years ago. So I'm grateful that we are now living in a world where elected officials are able to recognize that and see that that kind of love is worthy and valuable. But again, it, it just, it creates this dichotomy where I don't want to be able to be married and then my best friend next year is not. And that's what I'm concerned about. Thanks for being with us. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Garrett Royer, Deputy Director of One Colorado. A clarification, removing a provision from the state constitution requires only a simple majority of voters. It is introducing new language, which advocates may wish to do, that must clear the 55% threshold. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Chrisma Hanuk Kwanzaa? Kwanzaa Hanuk Chrismaka? Whatever you call a fusion of the holidays, celebrate with us at the 7th Annual Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. Tickets are selling fast to our live radio stage show featuring music, memories, and laughter. We gather December 15th, Thursday, in a stunning space in downtown Denver. Save your seat. Head to CPR.org slash holiday. Supported by First Western Trust. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Club Q shooting in Colorado Springs not only destroyed lives, it set an unwanted record for the state. With five killed and 17 hurt by gunfire, the state has a new mark for the number of people killed or injured by gunfire in mass shootings here in a single year. And with 13 mass shootings, 2022 also now ties for most in a single year in Colorado. CPR data reporter Veronica Penny has been tracking this data. And Veronica, thank you for being with us. Of course. Let's start with the source. Is the government like tracking these events specifically? 
The government is not specifically tracking these events, um, and that's part of a bigger issue around gun data across the country, which we can talk a little bit more about later. But these numbers come from the Gun Violence Archive, which is an independent group that formed in 2013 to keep track of mass shootings and gun violence deaths. So naturally, they have their own definition, I gather, of mass shootings. They do. The definition they use is when four or more people are injured or killed in a shooting, not including the shooter. Okay, four or more. Say more about where Colorado stands this year compared to past ones. Club Q was the 13th mass shooting in the state in 2022, and that's tied with the total number of 2021, so for all of 2021. Uh, there were 23 killed and another 57 injured. So that's 80 people total this 80 year. 80 people total. So just to parse this out, using the criteria of this gun violence archive, Colorado is now tied for last year with number of mass shootings. And you've noted there the year is not over and has set a record for those killed and injured in mass shootings. That's right. If my math is right, that's a little more than six people wounded or killed in each of those Colorado incidents. And yet, Veronica, not all of them get the same media attention. That's true. Uh, Some of these shootings result from domestic violence or their drive-by shootings or result from some other dispute. They might show up briefly on television news or as a story in the paper, but they're not always these random acts of violence in nightclubs or grocery stores or movie theaters. So they quickly pass out of the headlines. Are these events happening all over the state? They're mostly concentrated in cities. So this year we've seen mass shootings in Denver, Colorado Springs, and Aurora. Those are more densely populated areas, and they have higher rates of crime generally. And the number of mass shootings reflects that. The records being set fly in the face of some legislative efforts to reduce the number of shootings by at least slowing down or restricting the availability of firearms and high-capacity ammunition magazines, it seems to me. That's right. And certainly mass shootings like the 2012 Aurora Theater shooting were at the forefront of those debates. But mass shootings are a tiny part of the overall toll from gun violence in the state, just a third of a percent last year. A third of one percent. A third of one percent. Important context. State Representative Tom Sullivan, whose son Alex was murdered in the Aurora Theater, said that focusing solely on mass shootings misses the larger point of reducing gun violence overall. It's, it's not it's not, you know, assault weapons and mass shootings. It's day-to-day gun violence, and it's, it's, it's day-to-day access to it. So to be clear, the goal of the legislation we've seen passed in recent years is to reduce all sorts of gun violence. Yeah, certainly everyone would like to see the number of mass murders come down or be eliminated completely. But suicides account for nearly 70 percent of the state's gun deaths. And Colorado's suicide rate is particularly high compared to the rest of the country. Research shows that reducing access to firearms can save lives when people are having a mental health crisis and they don't get the care that they need. Here's Emmy Betts, director of the Injury and Violence Prevention Center at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. We need to be looking at what's happening every single day in urban communities and across the country in terms of suicide if we really want to look at the, where the bulk of gun deaths are. Your reporting shows that it's not just mass shootings, but gun deaths overall in the state that are up. Does that mean that the legislative efforts to restrict gun access are just not working as intended? It's not really possible to view Colorado as an island. The pandemic has driven up rates of violence everywhere, including self-inflicted violence. And at least one advocate for firearms restrictions believes that Colorado's numbers would be even worse without universal background checks and other changes. 
This is Kelly Drain, Research Director for the Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence. We don't know the degree to which those laws sort of tempered that increase. And we don't know what the impact of those laws would be had there not been this um, a pandemic and a historic increase in gun violence. As is so often the case with this issue, there's another side to this debate, Veronica. Of course, a lot of Second Amendment supporters believe that focusing just on restricting firearms misses the point. They worry that keeping guns out of the hands of law-abiding citizens takes away a means of protection in the face of these growing crime rates. What do they believe should be done? David Kopel of the Independence Institute told me that to begin with, instead of limiting gun access for everyone, we need to focus much more on repeat offenders with a propensity for violence. What you need to do is take the very small number of people who are high-rate repeat violent offenders off the streets and incarcerate them and hopefully rehabilitate them. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Just a quick note that the Independence Institute is partly funded by the National Rifle Association Foundation. The state has an Office of Gun Violence Prevention. I think it's within the health department. What's their role? The goal of that office is to act as a hub for gun violence research and data and to fund public education campaigns. They haven't done either of those things yet. The office received an initial budget of $3 million 18 months ago, but they've only just hired their director. So now that Colorado has set these new daunting records, where is the debate headed? The suicide statistics have always been there, but mass shootings were the events that drove the debate. It occurred to me in the course of reporting this that advocates for more firearm restrictions are turning more toward making the case for gun control as a means to reduce suicide numbers. So I see, shifting the focus to suicide, whereas the debate had been driven by other sorts of gun violence. And what does that look like? Maybe waiting periods for firearm purchases. Those are very contentious, but there are studies showing that a delay of even a few days can reduce suicide or homicide deaths by giving people a cooling off period. Hmm. There also may be greater emphasis on mobilizing specific communities. Think of Black and Latino neighborhoods that are disproportionately affected by gun homicides and white rural communities where gun suicide rates are high. Thanks so much for the reporting. Thank you. CPR data reporter Veronica Penny tracking mass shootings in Colorado this year. And you can take a closer look at the data at CPR.org. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. We are so grateful to our members, donors, and sponsors. You are such an important part of the work we do here every day. CPR News, CPR Classical, Indy 1023, Denverite, and KRCC in Southern Colorado wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio family. And on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Winter has given us just a taste of snow in Metro Denver, but far more in the mountains. Let's get a handle on what's happening and what might be in store with Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson, who joins us each month to talk Colorado weather and climate. And hi again, Mike. Ryan, nice to chat with you again. November turned out to be Denver's coldest in more than two decades. What contributed to that? Well, we had a northwesterly flow in the upper atmosphere up at the jet stream level of about 30,000 feet. And that allowed a lot of Canadian air to come down from central Canada and drop down across the northern Great Plains and sit upon Colorado. So Denver had a lot of cold mornings 
and fairly chilly days. And although we didn't have a ton of snow during the month, we certainly had some chilly weather conditions from that northwesterly jet stream. Canadian visitors, really. Ah. Uh, what, what is <laughs> they're the... They're very polite. <laughs> they're very polite. I, certainly more polite than the Canadian geese. Um, what is the outlook for cold into the new year? This La Nina pattern, and we've talked about it before, that's cooler than average temperatures in the Pacific equatorial waters. And it changes the flow of the jet stream, not only over the Pacific Ocean, but across North America and around the world. And typically, a La Nina winter uh, has a northwest to southeast jet stream pattern across the United States. That favors some of these cold shots that we saw in November. And what we've seen this week is it's shifted just slightly to more of a west-northwesterly pattern. That's brought a whole bunch of moisture to the mountains. They've been getting hammered with heavy snow. The mountains do a really good job of intercepting the moisture so that by the time that air gets up and over the continental divide and comes down to Denver, we don't see very much. And for several days this week, we've had partly cloudy, cold conditions, but dry here in Denver while it has been snowing big time up in the high country. What does that portend for the months ahead? Well, so far, we've been off to a fairly dry start to December down here, while the mountains have been in great shape. Yep. But I'm looking at a storm early next week, Monday, Tuesday, that may swing in here. That one's the most significant-looking storm that we've seen perhaps so far this season. So if it pans out right, we could be looking at a pretty good dump of snow Monday night into Tuesday of next week. What does this snowfall mean so far for snowpack, which is kind of nature's reservoir, our largest reservoir? A couple of things. The drought index looks pretty good across Colorado right now, especially in the central part of the state, along and west of I-25. We're actually out of drought. Now, this is not the growing season for the most part for agriculture. I mean, there's winter wheat that needs some moisture, etc. But our snowpack really is our reservoir for the warm season. And as of this conversation, we're slightly above normal snowpack for this time in December, with more to come. So a bit drier than as we head east in Colorado? A little bit drier on the plains, but again, we're not really in the growing season out there. Yeah. So if we can get a good snowpack this winter, that's much more important to the farmers at this stage. In the spring, they'd like to see a few good wet storms, but there's always something with farmers that they have to, it's calving season or whatever. I mean, they have a tough job because weather is so dependent on timing for everything that they do. Mm -hmm. Chris, that snowpack, uh, as the year goes on, will melt, that will feed rivers and streams, and that's uh, indeed how that water gets to, you know, the users of it. And for this time, the ski resorts are loving it because we have beautiful early season conditions. And it looks like, again, next week, perhaps much more to come. Let's go back to drought for a moment. It's nice that there seems to be a reprieve uh, for however long it lasts. But what do we know about the interplay between drought and climate? Because for a time... A third of Colorado was in drought for 165 straight weeks. It's the longest stretch in recorded drought monitor history, Mike. Well, climate change is happening. The, the world is getting warmer. The West is getting warmer. That means an earlier meltout of our snowpack in the spring. Uh, it means that more precipitation tends to fall as rain than it falls as snow. And that changes the way that that all plays into the rivers and the 
the water sheds and the storage that we have. On the Eastern Plains, remember, in our agricultural areas, as conditions warm up, drought is not just precipitation, it's also evaporation. Mm -hmm. And as we get into a warmer climate, we're going to see more evaporation on the Eastern Plains. And so that's going to mean we'll be more susceptible to drought in the decades to come. So that what does fall winds up dissipating. It evaporates and helps growing crops. Our climate team looked into a report that was presented to utility regulators about climate threats to the power grid. As Colorado's grid is increasingly fueled by wind and solar, uh, this report said future threats could come from boring weather, Mike, uh, days that are overcast without much wind or sun. It says many of those days could come during high pressure systems in winter. Can you tell us how those patterns work? Boring but important weather? Well, if we get a big H on the weather map that you see on TV, that's a big high pressure system. They tend to have quiet weather. The air in a high pressure system tends to slowly subside or drop down to the ground. And so you don't get rising currents of air that develop into storms and you don't get a lot of strong wind usually. So you get just kind of a blah weather pattern. Uh, It's nice as far as not having to worry about traveling, but it might not produce as many electrons from solar panels and wind. But I want to make something really clear because there's this old saying that people say, you know, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. On a big enough scale, it does. The sun always shines somewhere and the wind is always blowing somewhere. And we've seen studies, and these have been done by some of the smartest people up at NCAR and NOAA, right here along the Front Range, that show on a large enough scale, say 1,500 to 2,000 miles, it's always windy someplace, it's always sunny someplace. We can create the energy using renewable energy. We just need to improve our transmission system that moves that electricity from one point to another. It should be a major infrastructure project that the United States does in the next decade or two to get this done. If we can redo our transmission system, we can power our society with renewable energy. NCAR is the National Center for Atmospheric Research and NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Mike, thanks so much for being back with us. Ryan, always a pleasure. We'll see you next month. Happy holidays. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson and our regular conversation about weather and climate in Colorado. It was snow time, it was show time, it was no time to be lost in downtown Toronto. It was winter time, around dinner time. I'm beginning to see that the sunshine just doesn't want to. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Get the gear to spread the cheer this time of year and support the public radio service you hold dear. The CPR Shop, now open for all the Colorado public radio fans on your gift-giving list. Hats, t-shirts, a winter scarf, and would it be a public radio shop without a coffee mug? Come to shop.cpr.org. 
It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Whale is an early Oscar favorite. The movie, directed by Darren Aronofsky, stars Brendan Fraser as a reclusive English teacher who is obese. He's trying to reconnect with his estranged teenage daughter in one final attempt at forgiveness. Do you ever get the feeling people are incapable of not caring? In 2011, the writer Samuel D. Hunter sent his script for The Whale to the Denver Center Theater Company, a blind submission to the new play summit. Obviously, that set a lot into motion. The film version opens in movie theaters nationwide today. Hunter spoke with CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane last month. Can you talk to me about how it even started to become a movie after the success here and then it had a New York run and a couple of others? How did it become a movie? Well, it was this incredible thing that happened where, you know, I had uh, that beautiful production in Denver and then several months later it went to Playwrights Horizons in New York. And, you know, I felt like I had scaled Mount Everest. I was like, oh my gosh, it's it actually happened. I had these gleaming professional productions of this play that's very personal and dear to me. And then I get a call out of the blue that says Darren Aronofsky saw the play and he wants to meet with you. And that was 10 years ago. So I met with him very, you know, anxious and and not knowing what to expect. And I, I showed up and I met him at an editing bay and I like, I'm very, remember this very well, like rounding the corner and there's Russell Crowe's face on a big screen because he was in the middle of the edit for Noah. And we had, you know, an initial conversation about it. And in one of our early meetings, Darren was like, you know, I think we should keep this in the two bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. And I was so happy when he said that, because every time I ideated about doing that traditional thing about opening it up, you know, like showing Ellie at home or or, or at school or or Liz at work or Mary at home, or it, it just kind of was like, I, I don't know what added value this is. And I realized that like keeping a film in the confines of the two-bedroom apartment is untraditional, but I also think that's what this story fundamentally wants. And, you know, over the years, I would intersect with him every so often, and we'd talk about changes to the script or ways to make it more cinematic. Um, but it really wasn't until, and I knew that, 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 that Darren was on the hunt for the right Charlie. And I knew that Darren, you know, is such an exacting director that he would never make this movie unless he had full confidence that he had found the right Charlie. And I knew that he was looking everywhere on earth for this, for the right person, but he never floated any names past me. Did you float any names for him? I don't, I might've over the years, but honestly, I don't even remember. I mean, I, you know, I, I always brought up the actors who did, you know, the, the early productions, you know, like in Denver and in New York and Chicago. And, but, but I also knew that he needed to tell this story you know, the way that he wanted to tell it. And and so I, I I tried to just kind of give him his space. And, you know, seven, eight years in, he sends me an email and he says, what about Brendan Fraser? And so I knew that since he was actually sending a name to me that he meant business. So Darren rented a little theater in the East Village and we did a reading of the screenplay with Brendan. What was that like for you? <laughs> Before you even walked into the room for that reading, 
What was it like for you to to hear Brendan Fraser's name? Well, I immediately took to Google because I was like, well, what's he been up to? And and I read this, I believe it was a GQ profile of Brendan talking about what his life has looked like for the past, you know, 10 or so years or maybe even longer than that. And reading the profile and reading these quotes from Brendan, I was like, there might be something here. I think like Darren has really maybe found something. There's something about the DNA of this character and what Brendan has been through in the past few years that like, they're very different. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're not the same guy in any way, but, but there's something, there's something there. So when we did the reading about 10 minutes in, it was just like, oh my gosh, he, he knows it. He like, he, he knows exactly who this guy is. He knows. And I've seen a lot of people do this role and I know what it needs and I know what it lives or dies by. And Brendan has this uncanny ability to hold deep joy and deep despair simultaneously, which is exactly what the role needs. It needs to be this kind of like shining lighthouse in a dark, dark sea. And he got that from moment one. And so I think after that reading, Darren and I kind of looked at each other and we were like, whoa, I think, I think this might be it. But then two weeks later, the pandemic hit. And, um, and we all, you know, went indoors. Uh, and so that complicated things further. It was kind of this big act of faith, all of us coming together in this warehouse in Newburgh, New York, to, you know, in the middle of a pandemic to tell this very emotional, very searching story of a, of a man trying to reconnect with his daughter. You know, it's a credit to Darren that he had me on set the entire time and leaned on me very heavily and, and had me work directly with the actors quite a bit. In what way? Well, basically, I was there the entire shoot. So I should say we did three weeks of rehearsal before anybody turned a camera on. Like a play. Like a play. And and Darren actually like had them tape out the set in this warehouse, just like you would if you were rehearsing a play. And and Darren on, on day one was like, okay, we're a theater company. Not many first-time playwrights who are being adapted to a film for the first time, because as you noted earlier, this was your first big, glamorous, professional production when it was, when it was a play. That's right. <laughs> Not many get this ability to not only hold the screenwriting for themselves, but to be so engaged in the filmmaking. Exactly. Walk us through that. How did that happen for you? Well, I think, you know, Darren has never exactly worked with a writer like this before. And I think at a certain point he realized that I wrote this play from a lot of very personal places. You know, I'm a, I'm a gay kid from North Idaho who went to a fundamentalist religious school and for many years self-medicated with food. And that was the place from which I, I told this story. And I think Darren recognized that. And I think not only did he want to respect me and be generous toward me for that reason, but I think he realized there's utility in that, that like, I know this guy, you know, on this very deep elemental level and that I could be useful to him uh, as a collaborator. And bringing some authenticity that he might not otherwise have earned. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I, and to to his credit, you know, like Darren could have, really easily been like, thank you for the script. We'll see you at the premiere, maybe. <laughs> you know, like, like which, which often happens. It often happens. And he, you know, he could have hired a different screenwriter. He could have rewritten it him himself. And and never, he never even floated the possibility. And I'm I'm so glad that he didn't because I I, I think it has an integrity that it otherwise maybe wouldn't have had. You've made very subtle changes that I noticed in the in the core of the script. I mean, of course there's changes because it's it's much more cinematic, yeah. <laughs> but we're, we're still in the yes. same location. It's, <laughs> it's a lot of the same dialogue with a few minor changes. Mm -hmm. Our young man, for example, we 
no longer identify him as Mormon specifically. That's right. Can you talk about what went into that decision making? You know, it's funny. I, you know, I, I first started writing this play in like 2009. Uh, you know, in my in my late 20s. I'm 41 now. You know, I, I I've written over a little over a dozen plays since I wrote The Whale, and and so I feel like I've gained so much more experience as a writer. And over the last 10 years, I've looked at the script at various. I haven't been working constantly on the Whale screenplay for 10 years, but you know, at various points, I would reengage with it. And I think one of the big reasons I changed the character from being a Mormon to being more of a fundamentalist Christian is that I think maybe when I wrote the play, I made the character a Mormon perhaps in a bit of an act of self-protection because the the church that the kid attends in the movie is much more similar to the fundamentalist Christian school that I attended when I was in my teens. Um and so I felt like I could, I, I, as an older person who has been through years of therapy, I could maybe like approach that side of myself with a little bit more freedom and authenticity. And then, you know, there was just like, I think in re-envisioning it for the screen, it just made me look at it in different ways and think about, you know, the complex emotional terrain in different ways. I'm also a dad now to a little girl. Isn't that interesting that you're you're a girl dad and he's a girl dad? Yes. <laughs> In a way, yes. what did that do to impact your changes or your deepening of the script for for this film? I think I've always, on some level, known I wanted to be a dad. But when I first wrote the script, it was pretty theoretical. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I think I knew I wanted to be a parent, but that sense of fatherly love and fatherly affection was a a, a bit more theoretical to me. But it is so real to me now. I mean that you know, of like all the. All the cliches are true. Like when you have a kid, your heart is on the outside of your body. And so when I was reengaging with this character, you know, the idea of like of a father desperately trying to reconnect with a, a daughter was so real to me. As much as I love Charlie and as much as he's a part of me, he did something really egregious to this little girl, one that is unfathomable to me now as a dad. And and so I think that that aspect of the script really deepened and sharpened for me. Can you talk to me about what your hope is now that this has happened to your, because the film is not merely an adaptation of the play, which could very easily happen with a a, a first time screenwriter uh, adapting an early work. Mm-hmm. It's its own thing. It's definitely, it's, mm-hmm. it's the same characters. It's the same story, but it's definitely its own thing. It didn't feel like we just yeah. did a pro shot of the play. We had different entry points right, into the story. Right. Can you talk to me about what you hope for this film and and these characters and audiences receiving them? Yeah, wow. I mean, I I think this is going to get a little grandiose, so forgive me, but I think we live in pretty cynical times. I think even more so than when I wrote the play. I mean, I wrote the play feeling like the world was lacking in empathy. Uh, it's one of the big reasons I wrote the play. Uh, and the reason I wrote the play from such like an earnest place. And I think that that has only gotten worse in 2022. I think we're even more distanced from one another. I think we're even more suspicious of one another. I think we're more, we hold each other at arm's length even more. And I think that the, the sort of radical act of this, this story in this film is an act of hard won hope Mm. and saying we should have faith in other people. It is a worthy endeavor to have faith in other people because I think that cynicism is cheap and 
perversely comforting, hmm. uh, and it easily masquerades as sophistication or intelligence. And I actually think that cynicism is pretty unintelligent and pretty easy. I think the harder thing now is to have faith in people. And I think that's what this movie is asking. Mm. One thing that really sort of shone brightly in a very different way in this film than when we saw it on stage is the very small character of the pizza delivery person. Mm -hmm. I don't want to project onto it, but it was almost as if the people who are watching your film all of a sudden get a very quick glimpse of what they're like when they're not sitting there in the dark watching this movie in his reaction. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's easy to give over and be and you know be accepting for this character played by an actor that so many people have loved. And then you showed us who many of us are when we're not sitting there. That's right. I mean, I, I wrote in the pizza guy because I wanted him to remind the audience that you know, like to your point, like I think about 10 minutes into this film, hopefully any prejudices that some audience members, not all, but some audience members might bring into this story have melted away because there's this character in this beautiful performance and this man with a heart as big as the moon. But I wanted to remind people that like, there's still the outside world that hasn't been in this room with this guy that is going to harshly judge him. And that, that, that world hasn't changed. You know, even even though hopefully our our hearts and minds were were the people who do bring in the prejudices, their hearts and minds have changed by the time we see this pizza guy, but the world hasn't. Um, and that's the world that Charlie has been inhabiting his entire life. You're doing all of these interviews for your film, but you don't always get asked the kinds of things you'd like to talk about. What were you hoping you'd get to say that you either haven't had a chance to or I haven't given you the space to say? I first wrote this play thinking maybe I'm not going to show this to anybody. You know, like maybe this play is only for me. I was teaching expository writing to very disaffected kids in New Jersey, desperately trying to connect with them. And like Charlie does in the movie, at one point, I begged my students to just write something honest. And one of my students wrote uh, the line that ended up in the play in the film, I think I need to accept that my life is not going to be very exciting. And so when I started writing this, I was like, I guess I'm going to write a play about an expository writing teacher. Is anybody going to care about that? But, but I think the only way that I could really connect with it is if I told myself, okay, I might just be writing this only for myself. This might never leave my hard drive because that way I can put some more personal stuff on the line that up until that point I hadn't accessed because I was maybe too scared to access it. It felt too close to me. So when I wrote it, you know, and and very tenuously kind of brought it to the writing group I was in and, and showed it to very few people. It, it felt like this really vulnerable thing, this very vulnerable act. And in many ways, even though I have so much distance on it, it still feels very vulnerable to share this story with audiences and to, you know, to hand it over to to these actors. But I have been so overjoyed that that it's found open hearts and open minds. It's it's it, and I I've felt with Darren and Brendan and and with these audiences that I've been a part of just like so protected. So really, I just feel kind of awash in gratitude these days, uh, truly. Samuel Hunter wrote the play and the screenplay, The Whale. He spoke with my colleague Eden Lane in November. He just received the Denver Film Festival's Excellence in Writing Award. The movie, The Whale, opens in theaters nationwide today. All right, before we go, a musical treat from Southern Colorado. 
So we held a contest exclusive to that part of the state. The winner gets to perform next week at the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza, a big old radio show that we record in front of a live audience. A few tickets are still available. In any case, we are meeting the runners-up in the contest this week. Here again, our judges, CPR's Dan Boyce and KRCC's Vicki Greger. Okay, Vicki, we're talking about finalist Ruby Greenberg. She has a cover of a Christmas song by Joni Mitchell. And Ruby Greenberg says that she is an artist in Manitou Springs. She's born and raised in Colorado Springs. She says she's been singing professionally for the last 15 years. And before moving back to her home train, she was in New York City playing shows in Manhattan and She also has a jazz degree under her belt. After earning that, she started writing her own music. I suppose my first reflection upon hearing her rendition of this Joni Mitchell song is I I can hear a bit of that jazz music degree. And I agree with that. Um, Her her voice is lovely. So you hear that right away. And when you're going to approach a Joni Mitchell song, you really need to bring something to the table. And some of that has to do with the way Joni Mitchell writes. And to your point, those jazz moments, those tunings, those notes, it's easy to maybe do a facsimile of what you think the song kind of sounds like. And then another to actually get in there and have an understanding of those notes that you're singing. So not only does she hit the notes beautifully, you can tell that from a jazz perspective, she understands where the song is going. And so for uh, those of us who live in the Pikes Peak region, it's a good to know that we have Ruby Greenberg as an asset. She also writes in her entry that she does perform here locally. And so anyway, this is Ruby Greenberg playing the Joni Mitchell song, River. River. It's coming on Christmas. They're cutting down trees. They're putting up reindeer singing songs of joy and peace. I wish I had a river I could skate away on But it don't snow here, it stays pretty green I'm gonna make a lot of money And then I'm gonna quit this crazy scene Oh, I wish I had a river I could skate had a river so long I would teach my feet to I'm all goosebumpy now. Ruby Greenberg with a cover of Joni Mitchell's River. She's a runner-up in our Southern Colorado Music Contest. Find out who the winner is next week when we tape our seventh annual Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. A few tickets to the show Thursday night in Denver are still available at cpr.org slash holiday. It's a chance to see radio in the making and spend time with other public radio aficionados. Again, cpr.org slash holiday. 
And that is Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. I could skate.